Hello and welcome to Listen In, a podcast about the people, movements, and events that made the Spanish Civil War a part of Canada's cultural and political history. I'm your host, Karina Mickelson, and today I'm going to be talking to Hugh Goldring about anarchism during the Spanish Civil War and anarchism in Canada. for Ad Astra Comics. Do you want to introduce yourself? So my name's Hugh Goldring. I'm a writer, publisher, and snarky internet troll, and an anarchist. <laughs> Can you define anarchism as you understand it? Sure, yeah. I mean, it's one of those, a lot of political words, it's kind of like, what, what, what is an anarchist? What is a feminist? It's like, these things are pretty elastic. For me, anarchism is the idea that freedom and equality or equity really are both good things and that they're mutually co-constituting. So if people aren't free, they can't be equal because hierarchy occurs because some people are inevitably more free than others. Uh, and if people aren't equal, they can't really be free or if people don't have equity, they can't really be free because some people can exercise more power than others and they'll inevitably use that power to take advantage of people. Like in a historical sense, anarchism is a socialist tradition that believes that uh, the means of production should belong to the people who work them. Uh, but it defines that belonging differently from authoritarian communists and that it takes it more literally, not belong in this way where it's like the belonging is vested in a state that has prisons and a police force. It's like direct, it's like there are no intermediaries. There's uh, an assembly of people who work on the farm and the farm belongs to them. Uh, but they have like mutually interdependent relationships with people who need food and people who make agricultural machinery and so on. Anarchism is a kind of libertarian socialism that believes that people should be free and that they can't be free if there's a state or capitalism. Great. Those are really clear definitions. And can you tell me how you first learned about the Spanish Civil War and why it interests you? Like a surprising number of anarchists, I got into the Spanish Civil War when I was reading George Orwell's Homage to Catalonia. But I was drawn to the Spanish Civil War because I started my undergrad with this question, why is the left losing now? And I thought that maybe if I looked at 20th century history, I could find the answer. You know, And I mean, that was kind of like a bad frame because there have been wins for the environmental left and for like uh, struggles around identity for women and people of color and queer people. But like all those struggles are still ultimately coming up against the limits of capitalism. Uh, in the here and now. And so you know, the question does stand. Anyway, I, I was more interested in the first half of the 20th century than the second half. And my reading in Canadian history left me feeling like what, whatever was good about the CCF, it turned into the NDP and that made it a dead end. And I just reading about the kind of shenanigans that the Communist Party of Canada got up to, I like couldn't believe how awful they were. Uh, and how just like sectarian and manipulative and like more concerned with fucking up other people on the left than they were with organizing against the right. And I just like everything about them uh, rubbed me the wrong way and made me feel like this can't be, you know, what was the strength of the left. And I mean, in a way, it actually was the communist movement because Russia was out there as a state like the USSR rather, and it was threatening to European powers and it had a material basis to support communist movements in other countries. And so even for all the stuff that was fucked up about it, 
what was happening there was people were afraid that if there was a communist revolution in Canada or the United States or whatever, that Russia would support it and it would win. Yeah. Uh, and we can see since the fall of the USSR that that fear is gone and neoliberalism is steamrolling all of us everywhere. But anyway, I read homage to Catalonia and I was like, here's this configuration of socialist politics that is totally unfamiliar to me, both uh, the POUM and anarchism. And so I, I read through Orwell's voice, which is like he's a you know neurotic left-wing writer and a, and a white guy, you know, like let's not, let's not kid ourselves here. Like that made his perspective relatable to me. I didn't all at once get interested in the Spanish Civil War after reading it. I, I got interested in anarchism first because I was talking about it with a friend who was like, hey, you know, are you an anarchist? And I was like, oh, I, you know, I guess I am. <laughs> to my surprise, after years of, I didn't know anything about anarchism until I read the book. As for the Spanish Civil War, it wasn't until I got more into anarchism that I was like, well, what's up with the anarchist, the Spanish Civil War? And I started to read more about the war in general. So I don't have a good understanding of anarchist history, but it seems like Spain is one place where anarchism was really strong in the Spanish Civil War and in the decades leading up to it. Do you think that this is like unique situation or were there a lot of countries where anarchism was really strong in this period? Well, by the 30s, not so much. Anarchism has definitely probably been stronger in this Spanish speaking world, like not just in Spain, but in Cuba and Latin America. But there's no answering this question without going back to the split in the first international. Luckily, I read a 900-page book over the summer all about 19th century left-wing <laughs> drama. Uh, so I'm like very well equipped to answer this question. What's the book? It's called The First Socialist Schism, Marx and okay. Bakunin okay. and the First International. And the PDF is available for free online. So I super recommend it because it's an incredibly thoroughly researched work of, uh, it's like full of primary sources, like two-thirds quotations from letters and pamphlets and uh, public statements and stuff. So it's very informative. And the takeaway of the book is Marx wanted every chapter of the first international to focus on electoral politics. Uh, and he thought that that was a winning strategy. And there were countries where people agreed with him, like Germany and England, where there were already like, you know, socialist parties. And then there were other countries where it was more controversial and even countries where people felt like it was totally the wrong way to go. Uh, and Spain was first among the countries where people felt like electoral politics was a waste of time. I'm not sure why that was. I'd, I think I'd have to read more about like the early adoption of anarchism in Spain. But basically the way things shook out in the first international was the, the, the other side of the debate was not anarchism. The position in opposition to Marx was every national section of the first international should pick what its strategy is going to be as long as that strategy is aimed at abolishing capitalism and instituting socialism. So no one's position was initially the whole international should abstain from electoral politics. Uh, and there was also this thing in the first international called the General Council, and it had been created on, with the understanding that it was basically just there to coordinate correspondence and translate letters and publish statistics, you know, like do administrative work. Uh, but it was headquartered in London where Marx lived. And Marx and Engels interpreted it from the beginning to be a central executive body, which nobody agreed with. And they felt like they could use the Central Committee, whatever it was actually called, to force a political line on all of the national sections. And so this was where the conflict emerged, is that there be autonomy for local groups to decide how they're going to organize themselves, or should everyone be forced by a central organization to follow the same political line. 
after the conflict in the First International, the people who most strongly opposed central control were also people boycotting electoral politics, and those people came out of the First International calling themselves anarchists. There had been like one or two anarchist thinkers before that, but really anarchism as a mass movement started up as a way for the working class to take political power, not by seizing control of the state, but by self-organizing and dismantling the state. Mikhail Bakunin was a Russian exile who was living in Central Europe and was involved in the socialist movement and uh, is frequently identified as a father of anarchism and was identified by Marx as the leader of a secret dictatorial cult to seize control of the First International. And so rather than engage with the ideas that anarchists were putting forward in the First International, Marx like just cooked up this libel about Bakunin and was like, Bakunin is like the secret pope. They constantly called each other popes as a slur, <laughs> Marx and Bakunin. I just like people in general called each other popes all the time to indicate that they were like autocratic and mystical. Bakunin didn't, <laughs> didn't very effectively exercise control, but like some of his associates did. And the initial concentration of anarchists was actually in Switzerland, where there were a bunch of emigres living from different places. But the material point, which I keep letting get away from me, is that <laughs> anarchists and anarchist sympathetic people uh, sent organizers to Italy and Spain and Russia. And that's where anarchism took root initially. Uh, and the anarchist movement in Russia wasn't quite as big as the communist movement, but it, it was very significant. And it was actually crushed violently, along with another social movement I don't totally understand, uh, the social revolutionary movement in Russia, uh, during and after the First World War, uh, which that, that's its own conversation. But the anarchists went to Spain, they got people to Spain before Marx did, and by the time Marx sent his son-in-law, Paul Lafargue, to Spain to organize, it was too late, and anarchism had completely taken root. And all of Marx's efforts through Lafargue to like seize control of the Spanish section of the international and like direct the Spanish workers movement were unsuccessful. Wow. Yeah, I was really surprised when I was reading Free Women of Spain that the Communist Party of Spain only had 8,000 members at the start of the war. Like, that's so small. Well, it's astonishing uh, the way that anarchism or communism took root in these places really based on how very small groups of people were able in the 1870s and 1880s to be the first ones to like jump into the nascent socialist movement. There's a great Marx quote about the tradition of past generations weighs like a nightmare on the brain of a living. And that's like extremely apropos to the left now. And it's hard for us to conceive of like what the 1870s were like at the time because like socialism was such a new idea and it hadn't been discredited at all. And like the bourgeois was defaming it as soon as it came out as like, oh, are they saying the same things they say now? It's ridiculous, it's impractical. These people will be new tyrants. But it's like Russia hadn't totally gone off the rails. And like in the 1870s, there was no USSR. So it was a lot more credible and people just believed in it. It spread like wildfire, like a new religion in a way that's very hard for us to understand now. Because now any when you're trying to like get people to talk about socialism, you have to have an argument about 150 years worth of tradition that in many ways begins with the first international. But yeah, like it really had to do with the anarchists getting people to Spain ahead of Marx. I tried to find some stuff about, you know, how they successfully kept Marxism out, but I don't really know. I would have to look at it for a while. Can you define anti-fascism? Oh, I mean, how do you define opposition to something, right? It's a yeah. similar kind of thing. To me, anti-fascism is close to the historical definition of anti-fascism, but it's like for me, anti-fascism, it, it's best been described as like a three-way fight. That's the radical left perspective on anti-fascism because it's like there's the state and then there's fascists and then there's us, anti-fascists. And so it's not just us against the fascists or us against the state. 
uh, because sometimes the state punishes fascists, but often it's the other way around. Like I was reading about how the CIA funded a press in Portugal, which it used to funnel money and support and leadership to fascists in Italy, who founded fake far left groups and conducted terror campaigns in the so-called years of lead in order to discredit the left in Italy. Because they're like blowing up public spaces and defacing the tomb of the unknown soldiers and shit like this and blaming it on socialists. But those same fascists also went to Greece to visit the military dictatorship, which was in power there to learn about fascism. So it like we think of fascists as like this like fringy thing, and sometimes that's good in messaging to talk about fascism as being like way at the margins. But the reality is, most liberal and conservative governments that were in power, and even some of the socialist governments uh, in the first half of the 20th century, preferred Hitler to a successful workers' movement, and preferred fascism. It's the like a good way of putting it is the fascism is a stick that the ruling class uses to beat back revolution. Uh, and if they don't need the stick, then they put it away, but they never get rid of it. Yeah, I, uh, I highly recommend Against the Fascist Creep by my beautiful friend Alexander Reed Ross, which is published by AK Press, which is specifically about how fascists creep into far left organizing uh, in one way or another. And, and there's like fascists and various left wing tendencies and have been since the beginning of fascism, since you know, Mussolini was an anarchist originally, not like forever, but he drew on currents of anarchism. That's so, there's like a whole other question there that I wish I knew more about, about like what happened to anarchism in the countries where it took root. And I guess we're going to talk on this podcast about what happened in Spain, but it's like fascism crushed it in a lot of places. In a historical sense, anti-fascism is a coalition of everybody whose interests are threatened by fascism. And those people are threatened in different ways because for the ruling class, some, some members of the bourgeoisie, just like are liberal, right? Like they believe in human rights in, inside a capitalist framework and like they might turn a blind eye to the excesses of capitalism, but they wouldn't want to live in a society that rounded up and exterminated Jews, for example. And so those people are opposed to fascism on, you know, more or less moral grounds, even though they would co-sign a lot of the stuff uh, that fascists do. There, there's a whole hypocrisy here, too, where uh, George Orwell wrote a great essay that I can't name in the podcast called Not Counting, and then he used a racial slur, uh, where he talks about the way, the, the hypocrisy of social democracy, because he's basically saying Hitler can't set the average wage of the German industrial worker at a penny a day, but that's how it is in British India. Uh, and so, you know, we talk about having socialism here, but the reality is we have something as bad or worse than fascism in India that is propping up our socialism. So there's like a whole other conversation there about like even people as far left as the British Labour Party were only very weakly anti-imperialist because they didn't want to fall in the British standard of living since that would cost them votes. And that meant it was a chancy business to oppose empire in the wrong terms. Some people oppose fascism for very principled reasons, i.e. they're socialists and they believe in the opposite kind of government. And some people oppose it for largely opportunistic reasons, i.e. the British Empire doesn't want a German empire replacing it. And so even though they like bent over backwards to accommodate the Nazis, eventually they felt like the Nazis were getting so big that they were be beginning to threaten the British Empire and they felt like they had to step in and do something even though they didn't want to. So that's like historical anti-fascism, which I would say is... Okay, so you talked briefly about POUM and kind of Orwell's depiction of anarchism in Spain. Do you want to talk about that a bit? Specifically about... Poom and the CNT? This is a question that I wish I could answer more comprehensively, but I'll do my best. To go over it super briefly, 
There were a number of political parties in Spain that were on the Republican side. There were liberals in government. There were one or two kinds of electoral socialist parties. There was the Communist Party of Spain, which was quite small at the outset of the war, but it grew in influence and membership, both because of its willingness to participate in the government and also because the USSR, which it was affiliated with, was the only country other than Mexico sending arms to Spain. And so that helped them, even though not actually all that many arms, and it also didn't include any formal military aid, unlike the German and Italian support to the fascist side. Uh, apart from the Spanish Communist Party, there was the PUM, which was the merger of a kind of like independent socialist party with a small Trotskyist. But the PUM, I don't know how big the PUM was, but I think like fairly small, certainly compared to the anarchists. Now, the anarchists obviously don't have political parties, or hopefully that's obvious from earlier in this podcast, but like it is the original founding principle of anarchism not to participate in electoral politics. So the, instead of a political party, what they had was the labor movement and the CNT, uh, which stands for roughly the National Workers' Congress in English, was, I think, the biggest union in Spain. And it had at its peak two million members, which is an astonishing number of people to have in any labor union, period, for them to be in an anarchist labor union, which was like quite doctrinaire in its anarchism. Like it, it's just an astonishing integration of a political ideology and a movement. And so what made it an anarchist union was its structure and its position on electoral politics and its overall orientation. It wasn't just pushing for fair wages and shorter working hours. It was pushing for, uh, you know, in the long term, an overthrow of capitalism and an establishment of a stateless society. Where the conflict comes from is that from the moment that the coup started happening, like a, which is the beginning of the Civil War, that Franco was trying to overthrow the government with a bunch of mostly Moroccan troops, the anarchists saw their opportunity, perhaps erroneously, and immediately started collectivizing land, burning churches, and otherwise you know, making revolution. And uh, large segments of the rest of the anti-Franco forces, particularly the liberals in government and the Stalinists, were opposed to this in the case of the liberals because they were capitalists and in the case of the Stalinists, the short answer is the Stalinists in Spain opposed it because Stalin and the USSR opposed it. Why the USSR opposed making revolution in Spain is a very contentious point. I think that the official answer is because they thought that they needed to win the civil war and then have a revolution, but anarchists are usually of the opinion that they didn't want there to be a libertarian socialist revolution in Spain because if it succeeded, it would make Russia look all the more obviously like a hellish, you know, frostbitten massive gulag. The conflict from the beginning was fundamentally about whether or not there should be a revolution and a war happening at the same time. And the anarchists and the POUM were both of the opinion that they should be happening simultaneously. And where they had control of the country, which was primarily in Aragon and, and Catalonia and in the north uh, northeast, particularly Catalonia, which is the area around Barcelona, people probably know that because it's been in the news lately. Uh, and then also somewhat in Granada in the south, they were making revolution, redistributing land, collectivizing factories, and otherwise, you know, establishing anarchism for real while the war was going on. And they also had informal militias or formal militias rather than being in the army. And that was a thing that rankled the government. But it was also a thing that prevented the government from moving against the revolution itself because there were two million armed workers supporting the revolution who were not yet in the army. The conflict was a conflict about whether or not there should be a revolution and war at the same time, which was an ideological conflict, but was also just something of a power struggle. And there's a lot of arguments about, you know, what are kind of the key events of the struggle and what were the mistakes. Lots of people would say that 
the anarchists refusal for the most part to join the government uh, and like sit, take seats in cabinet meant that they didn't have a seat at the table and that contributed to their marginality in the long term. You, you can't know, would that have helped, would that not have helped? And some anarchists did sit in government too. And so there are anarchists who say it was a mistake to ever sit in government or it was a mistake to, or to ever join forces with communists and liberals in the first place and you just should have made the revolution and not worried about anything else. It's hard to know how true that is also. I think that probably the church burning was bad, uh, yeah. both in terms of the damage that it did to the cause internationally and the polarization that it would have had. Because probably a lot of working class Spanish people who looked at the militant atheism of anarchists and were like, well, this is a Spain that has no place for me in it. So, so it's like difficult to overstate the emphasis of that. And then, I mean, there's also just an argument to be made that it was a mistake for the anarchists to try and start a revolution before beating fascism. Like they could have just beat the fascists first and then turned on the communists once they were all combat <laughs> experience. But like, I don't know, that could end badly for them too. It might just be that there was no way for the anarchists to win the Spanish Civil War. A controversy blew up about apparently the minister of jails who was a communist was running secret prisons where he tortured anarchists, whom members and independent socialists. Uh, and then that led to fighting between communists and anarchists in the streets of Barcelona. And the anarchists held the telephone exchange and the communists attacked it, but were repelled. And then there was a ceasefire. And then after the ceasefire, uh, the communists slaughtered anarchists. So it, it goes on from there. It was like, it kind of happened bit by bit, like the absorption of the anarchist militias into the regular army probably didn't help. And I actually, so th this is something I read up on ahead of time. Uh, after they suppressed the anarchists, the Republican side went around the country undoing the revolution and like returning land to its landlords and this kind of thing. So it's like they carried out a counter revolution. Okay, so I have two questions coming off of that. So the first one you mentioned the CNT in like contemporary context. So did it survive? I mean, there is a CNT today. Yeah. So yes, is the short answer, mostly in exile. Barcelona and Catalonia are conveniently the part of Spain that is closest to the border with France. Mm -hmm. And many, many uh, anti-fascists fled Spain and were actually among the most active partisans against the Nazi in Vichy, the Nazis in Vichy, France. And there's some great scholarship about that. I can't think of any titles offhand. But I mean, if you, you're reading Revolutionary Women, uh, is that what it's called? No, Free Women of Spain. Uh, Free Women of Spain, yeah. By Martha Ackles. The first thing she says basically is that she's going over the women she interviewed and she's saying they're all women that were active and they all live in France now because they all fled the dictatorship. So I, the short answer is yeah, they fled in exile and survived. But I, it's hard to know. Like I never sat down and tallied it, but I have a sense that the communists and liberals killed almost as many anarchists as Franco did. Yeah, either by like putting them on the most vulnerable sections of the, the front or by jailing and killing them. Just the number of people that they jailed and killed on phony charges is astonishing. But then, you know, people, lots of people ended up in jail under Franco too. Like anyone who could have been proved to be fighting for the Republic was at least expropriated and very probably either killed or sentenced to life in prison. So most of the people that survived and the CNT that survived, survived in exile. So is there a CNT today? Yeah. Is it big for an anarchist union by 21st century standards? Definitely. But is it like big compared to what it was even in the 70s? No. That's that's really interesting. So my other question kind of goes back to that. You say there's like a conflict between the strategy of war and revolution. And that really hits the anarchists. And I was really interested in reading Free Women of Spain, how that 
became a particularly gendered issue as well. Like women saw opportunities and places for themselves in the social revolution, but the war effort kind of relied on them being traditional. Would you agree with that? So I, this is a great opportunity to plug my favorite movie of all time, Libertarius. Have you seen it? Or have I like recommended no, I haven't. times already? Is it the one that you recommended to me with a content warning? Yeah. I, 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 I like you could just not watch the last 10 minutes of the movie and the movie would not suffer significantly for it. But I mean, like you could expect that any movie about the Spanish Civil War is going to have a depressing ending. The, the end of Libertarius is soul crushing and features sexual violence, FYI to listeners. But Libertarius is a movie exactly about the free women of Spain, about the Mujeres Libres. Uh, and so it follows women in the militia, which is the reason that I'm asking about it, because women just did fight alongside men at first. There was a moment in the revolution, and there's an incredible scene in Libertarius, where the government was like, we need women to leave the front and go work in factories. But it didn't start that way. And so I like women, w- w- war and revolution and women were all compatible from an anarchist perspective. But mm-hmm. the anarchist commitment to a coalition with the state and, you know, other, you know, pseudo-state or non-state actors like the communists. The, so as it says in Free Women of Spain, the, the anarchist women in Spain had trouble getting men to take them seriously. It doesn't mean that they didn't fight in the war, but it does mean that uh, there was definitely like an attitude of machismo among male Spanish workers and male Spanish anarchists and that the Mujeres Libres were fighting, like already the Spanish anarchists were fighting a battle against both the government the bourgeois and the fascists and the Spanish women anarchists were fighting all of those battles and then another battle against patriarchy inside the anarchist movement. The, the short answer to your question is there wasn't a conflict between anarchism and fighting in the war, but there was a conflict between you know, participating in the popular front and mm-hmm. feminism because the popular front was significantly more socially conservative. Anarchism had a revival in the 1960s associated with the yippies, but also with uh, just like counterculture politics more broadly and people being kind of like, I don't know, do you know much about the SDS? Do you want an explainer about the acronym? It's a podcast. I should do that. The Students for a Democratic Society was this like enormous left-wing student group that was active in the 1960s and associated with a lot of high-profile 60s actions like the anti-war movement, the civil rights movement, this kind of thing. And there's a comic about them, which I highly recommend. Uh, I wrote a review of it on the Ad Astra website where I said that it wasn't very good. But if you just want to learn about the SDS, it's actually <laughs> pretty good. So the larger umbrella of the SDS was very uh, decentralized. And like the local chapters were basically just like whatever kind of radical organizing you want to do, do it through the SDS. And so it varied wildly. Uh, and you'll get a sense of that when you read the comic because it looks at like people's individual experiences. Anyway, some people in the SDS were like into radical history and they got into anarchism and they passed the torch. But anarchism was all but a dead letter until the late 70s when punks associated themselves with it. I think like somewhat as just like a marketing thing as much as like any kind of sincere commitment to anarchism. But there were a couple of like legitimately anarchist punk bands like Crass. And most people like I'll tell you, having toured America, it may be like. 60% of people I met who were anarchists uh, became anarchists because they were punks. Yeah, and I've definitely been noticing that when I meet somebody who identifies an anarchist and doesn't have a a punk aesthetic, I'm surprised. Because in Calgary, all the punks I knew were anarchists and all the anarchists I knew were punks. (laughs) I am not a punk. I don't have that background. Uh, And 
it drives me crazy because there's a bunch of other subcultural tendencies in punk, like uh, in-group, out-group politics that are super intense. Like, if you're not one of us, you're like, and, and like punk is deliberately offensive and antisocial. And like, I know that there are nice punks, the punks communities can be supportive places and all this. And it's like, this is a controversial, controversial view for an anarchist to hold. But uh, yeah, I think like overall, as much as it's good that punk gets people interested in anarchism, it's also like having the punk subculture vibe be a part of anarchism is like not actually great for anarchism. Does Canada have like a strong anarchist movement, if that is such a thing? Um, are there like important anarchist figures in Canada or like were there important moments for anarchism in Canada? I'm going to court controversy by saying that the Winnipeg general strike was an important moment for anarchism in Canada. No, not because anarchists were important to organizing it, but because it represented uh, a kind of mass civil disobedience, a general strike. The thing about anarchist tactics is that they're very effective, but people need to adhere to them. And they're very controversial because it's something that you can't really control. And so people who see themselves as like technical experts in social change, i.e. socialists and communists, don't like the tactics. Like they don't like the general strike in general. And like if it's happening, they'll try and control it, but they won't really push for it. But in the Winnipeg general strike, it's like it got close to being like certainly like verging on the territory of the Winnipeg commune or whatever, because they were delivering the milk and stuff. So that, that's something pretty striking. It's like Canada probably one of the few places in the world where the anarchist movement now is healthier than it was historically. Like the, the main anarchist Canada tidbit is that Emma Goldman lived in Toronto for the last three years of her life. Mm -hmm. uh, and there's a plaque devoted to her on Spadina that you can see if you go to Toronto. But she didn't do a ton of organizing, and she mostly uh, addressed herself to Jews in Yiddish because there was a big, it was the part, I think it was the part of Toronto she lived in, there was a big working class Jewish population that spoke Yiddish and was receptive to her speeches. And I think it was safer for her to give speeches in Yiddish because the, the papers couldn't go and report on them in the same way. There's a fairly famous anarchist uh, I'm excited to mention named George Woodcock, who was born and grew up in England and emigrated to Canada after the 1940s. And George Woodcock, wrote a two-part autobiography and I've only read the part where he didn't live in Canada so I can't be that helpful about it but he lived here from the 1950s <laughs> until the 1990s and he died in the 1990s I think and you can see a CBC clip of him on YouTube but he was a prolific anarchist author and biographer and he wrote biographies of Bakunin and Kropotkin and he was an associate of Orwell's at the end of Orwell's life in the period where he was most famous when they both lived in London and so his biography is interesting reading for that reason. But he also worked with Freedom Press, which is an anarchist press founded in London by Kropotkin. Uh, and he has this soul-crushing story of anarchist betrayal from the Second World War when there was this other group of anarchists not affiliated with Freedom Press who were constantly demanding that Freedom Press do free printing for them, at which Freedom Press wouldn't do because it couldn't afford to. And this group, which was like largely made up of European expats, one day showed up and robbed Freedom Press at gunpoint, which is just like, I've seen anarchists treat each other pretty shittily. But that's my world record. Since then, Woodcock moved to Canada and lived in Canada and was a publisher for a long time. It, anarchist stuff, like Jaggi Singh is an anarchist and he's a pretty famous guy. Uh, he's like probably one of the most famous Canadian anarchists, I would say. You may know him as the guy who was arrested at the Summit of the Americas in Quebec City for having a catapult that launched stuffed animals. I did not know that. <laughs> I can't believe I didn't know that. Yeah, I, I saw this documentary about him in high school, and I like he runs a Montreal anarchist book fair, so it's not like, again, anarchy famous is not very famous. Like Most of these people you can just go meet in real life. But yeah, I mean, the book fairs are the big thing. There's a regular book fair in Toronto. Uh, the Montreal book fair is like the anarchist book fair. 
Quebec is the anarchistiest part of Canada, and the fullest expression of that is the Quebec student strike, Assay. Assay works pretty much like the CNT internally. Okay. It's the biggest of the student unions. It was the driving force behind the student strike. They organize by department. So it'd be like, you're in the English department, you and the rest of the English majors meet in an assembly and vote on how you're going to conduct yourself as a department. That includes strike votes. And the way they were sustaining the strike was that department by department, university by university, and college by college, every week, they would meet in assemblies and vote on whether they were going to continue the strike weekly. And they sustained a strike with weekly strike votes, which is incredible, for months. Mm -hmm. uh, and they had a really high level of picket enforcement and a really high level of street mobilization going along with that. The material point here is SA is not like an avowedly anarchist organization, but it was peopled with anarchists and it uses anarchist tactics like direct action and striking. Nice, and nice. it was leaderless. I guess my only other question is about Antifa. I'm just curious if you can like articulate how it fits in in terms of the trajectory of anti-fascism or the trajectory of anarchism. So I guess this is like a whole weird, it really depends on how you read this stuff. And I'll give my read and then maybe I'll like try and give a more neutral read too. <laughs> I don't think that, I, I don't buy the Marxist idea that history is going to end at the end of capitalism, which is kind of implicit uh, the history, in, in the Marxist teleology of history. Uh, but I do think that capitalism is just like a stage in human development determined by the means of production. Like I'm a Marxist insofar as I believe that. And I think that there are two worlds struggling to be born inside capitalism, a world where technology becomes completely a thing that dominates and controls us, and that's fascism, and a world where the liberatory potential of technology is realized. And, you know, call that what you want, whether it's anarchism or fully automated luxury liberalism, I've heard it sometimes called. <laughs> the, the, the salient point here is that it's like fascism is an inherent potential of capitalism, of the productive capacities unleashed by capitalism. And as capitalist infrastructure builds up it's like we forget right that it's like the whole planet isn't fully industrialized yet there's like lots of places where there's farms and i mean like what, what's fully industrialized too are we going to cut down every forest and like mine every mountain i don't know but uh there are a lot of places where people live largely unautomated lives and still largely consume things that they produce themselves or that are like cast offs from the developed world rather than like having uh making stuff themselves so I, while we don't necessarily know where like full industrialization is, the point here is that as capitalism progresses, it's like unleashing social and productive forces and who knows where that's going to end up. And I think that uh, the idea that we beat fascism in World War II and it was gone forever is like obviously wrong now. I, I had a friend I was arguing with this about four or five years ago, and he was just like, I don't really think that fascism is that big a deal, Hugh. And well, who's laughing now? <laughs> but Nobody. Uh, yeah, exactly. It's like not really funny. <laughs> this is not happening for no reason, right? Like, uh, fascism is a manifestation of anxiety and like lots of kinds of anxiety. But uh, like a lot of it just is material. It's like people are poor and disenfranchised and they're looking for a reason to explain their vulnerability because they feel humiliated. I think that's the key word here is that fascism is about feeling humiliated and wanting to be empowered. The best way that I can put this is it just like people think that they can sit on the fence. And this is something, is one of the few things I would agree with fascists about, right? It's like, you can't sit on the fence. It's only a matter of time before things get so polarized that either you live in some kind of socialist world or you live in some kind of uh, fascist world. And like capitalism can't 
like has Yeats put it, the center cannot hold. I think that's inevitable sooner or later. And I don't like, I, I could be wrong there. And like, that's a more objective read on history that it's like, maybe the bourgeois will go on straddling the divide between those contradictions indefinitely. And when they get into space and then product, you know, the mode of production we have as a space going civilization will determine what the next social system looks like, where the people that live on earth have it really good. And the people that live on Mars live a shitty life. I don't know. But it seems more likely that on Earth there is going to be a showdown between socialism of some species and fascism. And so what's happening with fascism now is as things get polarized, people feel like, I want to be clear that I think that the advancement of human rights is a good thing. Hopefully nobody's questioning that. But uh, it's also driving a fascist reaction. Like you can see that fascists are able to kind of enter into merely reactionary as opposed to explicitly fascist politics around stuff like trans rights, where people, not very intellectually sophisticated people are having this reaction that's like, well, boy and girl are the only real genders. So what's this, what's this non-binary stuff? Like Jordan Peterson. Jordan Peterson, yeah. even though he's a bunch of fascist ideas, is not a fascist himself, but he's attractive to fascists and the conversations around him and his heroic refusal to use gender neutral pronouns is empowering fascists for sure. So like in terms of what do I think the role of Antifa is, this kind of comes back to like, why are people anti-fascist in a historical context, right? For me, I would like to create a society that eliminates the scarcity and insecurity that causes people to become fascist. It's not just scarcity and insecurity too, right? It's also like uh, dog whistle narratives of anti-immigrant and anti-Muslim sentiment in the media. But it's like that's happening because there's a profit motive to do it. And there's a profit motive in our news because we live under capitalism. And so our news is produced in a way that reflects that. So I don't think in the final analysis, there's any way to beat fascism without abolishing capitalism. And to me, being anti-fascist is about doing anti-fascist recruitment work and building up mass working class organizations capable of confronting not only fascists, but capitalism in the state as well. And I think the group that's most doing that right now is Redneck Revolt. What they do is they use guns as a conversational opener to be like, I'm like you, I'm, I work for a living, like I work with my hands or I like might work with my body in general, but do a kind of shitty demeaning work. And I also love guns and I also identify with like, you know, working class American culture, whether that's pickup trucks or cowboy hats or whatever. And I'm an anti-racist and I hate capitalism and I think, you know, imperialism is bad. It's interesting that you use the term demeaning because I wonder if like humiliation is a opening. Like I also feel humiliated. Let's look at who's the cause of that, right? That's exactly how they do it. Yeah. Because in general, no one is recruiting there. And it's interesting that no one is recruiting there because what's I, like, I'm going to say something kind of controversial, but I think materially relevant. And what I will say first is that there's a famous Black Panther quote about what can, responding to a question, I forget who it was, maybe Stokely Carmichael, someone asked him, like, what can white people do to support the Black Panthers? He's like, found a white Panther party. Uh, and what's meant there is that white people need to go organize themselves. And like the, the form that that has mostly taken it has to do with university education and anti-racism being tied up in each other. And like anti-oppression is this kind of like academic discourse being tied up in the way that people are anti-racist. And it's like, that is an anti-racism. It's hard for working class people to see themselves reflected in. I, I don't want to overstate the racism of working class people, because first of all, lots of working class people are people of color. And second of all, lots of white working class people are not racist compared to white middle class people who tend to be more racist, I think, or racist in more pervasive and harmful ways. H having said that, like, I, I just think it's true that it's important to do counter recruiting. And I think that that's the work Redneck Revolt 
Revolt is doing, but like going and talking to people, you know, being these people first of all, and then like going and talking to them and being like, yo, I also like work for a living. I haven't been to university. I'm not a paid protester. I'm like just a regular person like you. I'm not, I don't belong to the activist subcultural clique. And I am concerned about these things. And I think you should be too. And I think you should know that there's a history in America of people like us standing up to capitalism and standing up to racism. There's a great anarchist pamphlet called You Can't Blow Up a Social Relationship. And I also think it's true that you can't sucker punch fascism out of existence. It has material roots. Obviously, if fighting was capable of defeating it, then we would have defeated it in World War II because that was like pretty total. Like, and I think most anti-fascists, like certainly anti-fascist scholarship, if you look at like Mark Bray or Sasha Ross or uh, Shane Burley or Chip Burlett or like, you know, scholars of anti-fascism and like people who, people on the left that study fascism, they'll say, uh, fascism has its roots in capitalism and you can't just street fight it out of existence but also it's important if it gets to a point where there are fascists walking in the streets and like endangering people of color that you do confront it in the street because if you don't then they'll feel emboldened and they'll do it more okay do you have anything else to say i think you've covered everything i had questions about i think in summary anti-fascism is an everybody problem and in spite of the way i framed it i think that even if you're just an ordinary liberal person you should still be concerned about fascism if you you know care about the safety of women and people of color if you care about the safety of queer people like you should be concerned about fascism because they won't wait till they have power to endanger those people they'll attack them in the street they'll dox them and try and get them deported and in that sense you know you don't need to share my revolutionary socialist outlook to oppose fascism it's sufficient just to be a decent human being and not want to see people suffer well said thank you so much for talking to me this was super interesting Today's episode was produced by me, Karina Mickelson, and featured guest Hugh Goldring. You can find out more about Hugh Goldring's work on Ad Astra Comics, and I'll be linking to that in our episode notes and on our website. You can find a full list of the books and movies and articles that Hugh and I referenced on our website, SpanishCivilWar.ca slash podcasts. This podcast is supported by the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council and by Canada and the Spanish Civil War. Our theme song is Libertad by Iriarte and Pezoa, and it's from the Free Music Archive. And thank you so much for bearing with me during my very long break. I'll try to get episodes to you more frequently, and I'm hoping that the next episode will either be about radio or about fascism and anti-fascism in Ethiopia and Morocco. So listen in.